tried to organize the <coughs> many questions, and so put a few of them together. The association between them may not always be obvious, but it is in my mind. <laughs> so I thought I'd start with an easy one. Uh, actually, <laughs> having questions after you know seven weeks or eight weeks or four weeks of people sitting in silence. It's quite amazing what the mind comes up with. (laughs) So this is easy. I have been called a yogi many times in the past weeks. What does it mean? (laughs) uh, The reason we're called yogis really just comes from uh, our experience in Burma, you know, when first practiced in the Mahasi method, uh, practiced with Manindra in India and then with Upandita in Burma, that's what they call meditators. And so there's nothing more exotic uh, than that. It's just a transmission from the Asian tradition. And it's the sense of someone who meditates, someone who is practicing liberation. Okay, that was easy. <laughs> there are times when it seems that the practice actually forces selfishness rather than selflessness. When we get so wrapped up in our own process that we lose sight of how we affect those around us. Is this some sort of misuse of practice? Or is it, is it a common stage of the unfolding process? In Steve Armstrong's last talk, he mentioned the Buddhist teaching to give to your enemies, or maybe just those that feel like they are. Have you experienced with this practice? What do you think about applying it? I think there's a part of the meditation, part of mindfulness, which is called clear comprehension. And that's a more expanded sense of mindfulness, not just the precise, detailed knowing of the moment's experience, but also a sense of the context in which it's happening. And so, for example, if you were pouring yourself a cup of tea, you wouldn't want to be so into the sensations of the movement of your arm, turning, 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 but you're not paying attention to when the cup is filled. And so we need to to broaden our scope of awareness. We could extend that out, not only to what we're doing, but some sense of the situation and the people around us. So we're not necessarily looking about or, or letting our mind wander into thought about it, but some sense of presence, clear comprehension of the situation. There's a very beautiful uh, example of this in the suttas, in the Middle End sayings, and I, I just want to read a little bit of it. The Buddha came to visit uh, one of the great disciples, uh, Anuruddha, 
who was known for, he, he was preeminent of all the disciples with the divine eye. And so he was, he was fully enlightened. He had all of these uh, powers of mind. He was living in a forest grove uh, with two other monks. And the Buddha came by one day to, um, for an interview. And at first the gatekeeper of the park didn't want to let the Buddha in because he didn't know who he was. And he said, you know, these monks are practicing, please don't disturb them. But then he found out who it was at the gate. And he let him in. And so the Buddha has this dialogue with Anuruddha. And the Buddha says, I hope you are all keeping well, Anuruddha. I hope you are all comfortable. I hope you are not having any trouble getting alms food. And Anuruddha replies, we are keeping well, blessed one. We are comfortable and we are not having any trouble getting alms food. I hope, Anuruddha, that you are all living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. Surely, and this is Anuruddha, Anuruddha replying, Surely, venerable sir, we are living in concord with mutual appreciation, without disputing, blending like milk and water, viewing each other with kindly eyes. But Anuruddha, the Buddha asked, how do you live thus? Venerable sir, as to that, I think thus. It is a gain, this is Anuruddha speaking, replying to the Buddha, it is a gain for me, it is a great gain for me, that I am living with such companions in the holy life. I maintain bodily acts of loving-kindness towards these venerable ones, both openly and privately. I maintain verbal acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I maintain mental acts of loving-kindness towards them, both openly and privately. I consider, why should I not set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do? And I set aside what I wish to do and do what these venerable ones wish to do. We are different in body, venerable sir, but one in mind. And the sutta goes on in that vein. That's just such a, a simple you know, and clear understanding of the practice of living together, whether it's in this community or in other communities that we live in, of not coming from a place of self-centeredness, where we, where we really are able to abide in loving feeling towards each other, of not putting ourselves first. Now here it's set up you know, that there's not much opportunity to actually be taking care of each other uh, throughout the day in a physical way. Although, I wonder as you do your yogi jobs, you know, whether it's with that spirit, because that's the same, the same intent as the Buddha was talking about, you know, that we have a chance to be of service to everyone in the community for the community's sake, for the harmony, for the well-being. When we hold this clear comprehension and hold this feeling and practice this feeling of metta, of well-wishing, we begin to lose that sense that the practice is self-centered or selfish. 
because we're really doing it in the context, in a larger context of everyone else. I'm going to come back to this point later in the questions. In terms of giving to one's enemy, I think it is a very good practice. Probably it's good to start with someone who's not the major enemy of your life, but to start with somebody who's you know a little bit difficult, and then maybe somewhat more difficult. My experience has been that when I can do that, when I'm mindful enough to not be so caught up in my own reaction, and to see the whole situation and to remember, yeah, this might be a good idea. Can I be generous towards this person? What it does is it loosens the fixation of mind on our own points of view. You know, we get so stuck in our perspective of a situation. And generally with someone who we feel is being difficult or is our enemy, Usually in that situation, we're very polarized. And the more polarized we are, the more stuck we get in our perspective, the less we're able to even have the possibility of understanding where they may be coming from. An act of generosity in that context is quite amazing. First, For the person receiving it will be a major surprise. (laughs) And when one receives a gift, you know, it's very hard to stay really angry at somebody who's giving you a gift. So from the other side, it begins to soften things a little bit. From our own side, we're letting go somewhat of an attachment to our own point of view. And it's possible then for some different kind of energy to flow between us and the difficult person, some possibility of communication. So I think it's a really skillful practice. It takes some clear comprehension as to appropriateness of gift, appropriateness of time. You know, so it's not that we just kind of rush in with this sort of do-gooding mind. But I think being open to that possibility of watching the miracle of generosity and how it can soften a situation, I think in my experience, in doing that with people I've had difficulty with, it has almost always changed the situation for the better. Along the same line, how can one use the metta practice to develop wisdom and liberate the heart and mind? How do you skillfully determine whether the focus on metta or vipassana, whether to focus on metta or vipassana, if there is no overriding need and conditions change moment by moment? Could you please elaborate on the mind state of aversion to aversion? The second part was not so clear, and how one might feed this mind state on retreat and in life. Not sure what one would want to feed one's aversion to aversion, uh, but how to relate to it, I think, is is a key question. 
There are two ways of understanding the practice of metta and the practice of vipassana. One is really as separate, distinct practices. You know, done in a formal way. And in that sense, they are quite different. I think the basic practice we do in terms of the development of wisdom and understanding is Vipassana, is the clear seeing, is the development of mindfulness. There are times and appropriate times to do formal metta practice in one's spiritual path. One of those conditions might be if one is really caught up in a lot of aversion, a lot of ill will, a lot of jealousy. You know, if those if those patterns are very, very strong and we're lost in them again and again, if in fact there's a lot of aversion or aversion to aversion, if our mind has gotten hard in that way and we find it difficult to really be mindful and work with it, then a period of metta practice could be really helpful. It can also be helpful when we're going along, we're practicing the Vipassana, and after some time, after some extended time, it just feels like we've hit a plateau of concentration, of depth, of energy, and it feels kind of like a stuck place And this has been my experience also. At that time, doing some period of intensive metta practice, which is a concentration practice, it can really uh, deepen, deepen the power of the samadhi and have a big effect then on the subsequent vipassana. Each time I've done periods of metta, you know, for a month or two months at a time, After that, each time the Vipassana has gotten to a deeper place. Now I'm talking not about times of just the ordinary difficulties, you know, the ups and the ordinary ups and downs of Vipassana, which that's just part of the natural process. I'm talking about times when we've practiced a lot and it just feels like we need an extra boost. And that usually is best determined with uh, one of your teachers. But metta is also, not it's not only kind of a separate formal practice, but it is also a quality that we want to bring to the vipassana, in the vipassana. Because metta is that quality of acceptance, of openness. Let me be with this. And the more we cultivate that right with our mindfulness, This is okay. Let me feel it. Let me be with it. Let me open to it, especially with physical sensations or emotions or mind states that are difficult, like aversion. So instead of strengthening the aversion to the aversion or the aversion to other difficulty, if we can remember to imbue the mindfulness or understand the mindfulness as being that quality of openness, of acceptance, then the heart softens, it relaxes, it becomes more receptive. It's like, can I let this in, rather than try to keep it out? 
that quality of metta, of loving kindness, that's right in our mindfulness practice has a huge, hugely beneficial effect. Because as we become less reactive, we see more clearly. As we see more clearly, we can discern what is skillful, what is unskillful. As we discern more clearly what's wholesome and unwholesome, we can make wiser choices. As we make wiser choices, we experience greater happiness. As we experience greater happiness, we feel more metta, we feel more open. In the openness, we discern more. It's like the spiral upwards. So in this, in this way, the metta and vipassana are not seen just as the separate formal practices, but really it's a quality of the heart and mind that we bring right into our vipassana practice. Does this seem clear to you? It's, it's very, very helpful. I think I've mentioned to you, I don't remember whether it was in this half or the first half of the retreat, It was, it was a way this old Sri Lankan monk, monk taught metta towards oneself. And it had an amazing, amazingly uh, wonderful effect on our relationship to our own bodies. And the way he did it, he would go through the body repeating some of the metta phrases, may my head be happy and healthy. May my neck be happy and healthy. May my shoulders, may my back, may my chest be happy and healthy and peaceful. And he went through the whole body. And it was quite interesting in doing that, going through the body, feeling what's there, and then explicitly wishing that part of the body well. It's amazing how the mind softened in relationship to whatever pains or tensions or difficulties we might feel in the body. And it was a way of imbuing the awareness with that loving feeling. So just as a way of practicing it to get a sense of that relationship, it could be very helpful. And you could start directing the metta towards one's own mind states. May my thoughts be happy and healthy. (laughs) (laughs) In my mood. Okay. Okay. How is the sincere desire to awaken not desire for becoming and desire for not becoming? You know, in the Buddhist teaching, there's the three kinds of desire are grasping for sense pleasures, for becoming and not becoming. So how is the desire for awakening different than that? Could you please speak a little more about purity of motivation in the context of how one directs one's life and service? Is there anything wrong in wanting to make a big difference rather than a small one? and how to maintain humility in the presence of such a desire. Hmm. 
it's a little long. The discussion of anatta seems to me to be just semantics. semantics. Of course, all things consist of constituent parts and are changing. That doesn't mean an apple or a chariot doesn't exist. So the self consists of this awareness, which is aware of sensations in this body, experiences these thoughts, all of which are changing. This seems sort of obvious. What else could the self be? And no one has addressed why this constellation isn't separate. This awareness only experiences sensations in this body, all of which are separate from other awarenesses and bodies. So what am I misunderstanding? Okay. It was interesting reading these different questions and trying to kind of find a common theme. What makes the desire for awakening different than the other kinds of desire for becoming or not becoming? And what about that purity of motivation? You know, where we have an aspiration to help in a big way rather than a small way. Is there, is there something suspect about that? I think it all depends, and this is what we need to look at carefully, of where the desire is rooted. Because in English, we use the word desire to cover a lot of different kinds of mind states. There's the desire of greed, there's the desire of grasping, there's the desire of motivation to do something, which might be motivated by compassion or wisdom or self-aggrandizement. And so if there's an aspiration to do something grand and big and helpful in a very big way, we need to look at our motivation. Where is it coming from? Is it rooted in self, or is it rooted in compassion for suffering? The Buddha talked quite specifically about what could be called the desire for awakening. And again, I want to read from the sutta. It's in the Middle Land sayings, and... The name of the sutta, I think, is quite interesting. It's called One Fortunate Attachment. So, bhikkhus, I, w- I shall teach you the summary and exposition of one who has one fortunate attachment. Listen and attend closely to what I shall say. Yes, Venerable Sir, the bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes. For the past has been left behind, the future has not yet been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Instead, with insight, let them see each presently arisen state. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly and unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day and by night, that is the one, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. 
And so the desire for awakening could be seen as this one fortunate attachment. It's the attachment, in quotes, to being invincibly and unshakably aware of what's arising in the present moment. So what does invincibly mean and unshakably mean? The Buddha goes on to explain it. And how because is one invincible in regard to presently arisen states? Here bhikkhus, one does not regard material form as self, does not regard feeling as self, perception as self, formations as self, consciousness as self. This is how one is invincible in regard to presently arisen states. So again, it comes back to that understanding of the selfless nature of experience in each moment. That's the difference between the desire for awakening, the desire, what we could call this one fortunate attachment, the attachment to be present in the moment, understanding experience as being selfless. The body and feelings and perceptions and all the mental formations and consciousness, not I, not self, not mine. In that selflessness, the motivation becomes pure, the walking on the path becomes pure, and it's differentiated then from the desire for becoming, which is rooted in self, or the desire for not becoming, which is also rooted in self. Does this seem clear to you? It all comes back to the clear seeing in the moment, the connection in the moment, the mindfulness in the moment of whatever it is that's arising understanding it to be selfless, not me, not mine, not belonging to me. That's where the motivation, the the altruistic motivation to serve comes from. That's where the desire for awakening can come from. And that's what leads us on. One of the most challenging aspects of the practice is to stay tuned and sensitive, stay attuned to the quality of one's own motivation. You know, and as we go on and as we pay more attention to the almost subliminal level thoughts, and feelings that are arising and so often are in the background or just barely above the threshold of consciousness, we begin to get a much clearer sense of the range of motivations within us. And for most of us, they're mixed. It's not that as we look and settle in, 
we just see this totally pure heart. Maybe some of you, but it's rare. I mean, mostly we see the mix, but it's precisely in the seeing that the purifying process can happen, because in the seeing we can then begin to make choices. We can see what's to abandon, what's to cultivate, what do I act on, what don't I act on. ahead to another question here which is related to this. From your personal experience, yourself and people you know, can you give examples of how you, of how your insights and wisdom have deepened over the years, 10, 20, 30 years? That was a great question because it really made me reflect, has anything changed? (laughs) I've been practicing a long time. And so I was just as I read this question last night, I was really reflecting uh, in, a, in a really helpful way. And I saw that there have been some major shifts in my understanding through the practice. One had to do with what I was just mentioning, a growing willingness and sensitivity to the mix of motivation. Because I think when I began my practice, I was not so willing to see the shadow side. I was not so happy in seeing it. And one of the big changes which I recommend to you as a way of practice is beginning to actually have a sense of delight when you see something unwholesome in the mind. And the delight is not the delight that it's there, but rather the delight that was seeing it. Because for myself, when I could stop judging myself for all the unwholesome, impure thoughts and feelings, when I stopped getting down on myself for them arising, then I opened to the space really of great interest and seeing whatever, whatever, whether it's greed or desire or ill will or any of the many defilements that can arise. When it would come up and I would see it clearly, I got so happy because I'd rather see it than not see it. It's only in the awareness of it that we actually can understand the emptiness of those mind states and not be so caught, not be so identified. So that was a big shift. Became much less self-judgmental, more interested in what was arising. And as I became less self-judgmental, I found that I became much less judgmental of others. Now, as I could accept all these parts in myself, so yeah, this is... This is what arises in everybody. This is in common. And there's that same or an increased feeling of metta and acceptance of these mind states in everybody else. That was a a real shift. Another kind of insight that has grown over the years in a very helpful way something that on some level is very obvious, but 
the understanding of it can reach tremendous depths. And that is the increased the increased present moment awareness of the impermanence of things. So that it's not just an intellectual concept or agreement, which we all know that things are changing, but an increased seeing just in in every ordinary day-to-day experience, it keeps changing, it keeps flowing. The impact of that of that application is that the mind really doesn't hold on as much. And it begins to break down the fragmentation we sometimes unconsciously get into of meditation as being fundamentally different than our lives. Now this is a very supportive environment But the mind-body process is the same, whether you're sitting here or you're home or you're at work or you're with your family. It's the same process is going on. And so we need to come to that place of seeing it as a whole rather than, well, this is my spiritual practice and this is something else. This is my worldly life. We need to integrate it. The direct seeing of impermanence in the simplest things, really starts to transform how we're living in the world. We're less driven by compulsive desire. Not that the desire doesn't arise and that we don't act on it often, but there's less, there's a decreasing sense of being driven. Because we know, we've been reflecting and we've been seeing Whatever it is we want, or think we're going to get, is going to also pass away. How many scoops of ice cream have we eaten in our lives? (laughs) And yet it is quite amazing just to watch the energy when ice cream done is out. I mean, I feel it. You know, I go there and I kind of get all excited. (laughs) 20 different flavors. To whatever degree we can remember, yes, it's a nice experience, it's a pleasant taste. It's going to pass, just like they've all passed. It brings about a certain equanimity, and we're less less caught up in it. That's another way the practice has really transformed over the years, of just being more conscious of that more often. Just the last piece I wanted to mention is really a function of the intensive kind of meditation you're doing now. Now, overall, I've been practicing since the 60s, so it's it's over many years, and I've done a lot of long retreats. And what's been very uh, rewarding to observe and fulfilling is that the base level concentration... I don't know the right direction <laughs> gets higher or stronger. You know, when I when I first began my practice, and for quite a long time, like you know, for ten years or fifteen years, it's like every time I would start a retreat, 
I would feel like I, I was starting all over building the concentration, you know, getting into that struggle. But just you know, over 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, with regular practice and regular retreat time, it's like the concentration slowly, it begins to become the foundation, uh, a stronger foundation in our lives and our practice. And we start, we start out from a stronger base. It makes the practice then much easier. We're not struggling each time so much. So that happens. And I know it can happen for everyone because, as I may have mentioned to you, I had zero samadhi when I started. Zero. I mean, I just sat and thought the whole time. (laughs) But I was very persevering. I, I had that one strength. You know, so I just kept doing it. I just kept sitting and walking and bringing my mind back and doing periods of metta. And and over the years, I've really seen a significant change. So it's in all these ways that the practice does develop and deepen and expand you know, over time. Can you tell for sure if a person is enlightened? If so, how? We are told by teachers that freedom is possible in this very life, yet there seems to be a reluctance to point to specific persons as partially or fully enlightened. Since our practice is based on direct experience, what basis do I have for believing that freedom is possible at all, let alone in this very life? Every, each day in my practice, I see that it takes a tremendous amount of faith, courage, patience, and humility to make the right effort, to become a beginner again and again, to give up the urge to control my experience and simply learn how to be there with it as it unfolds. Faith, courage, patience, humility, these begin to sound like a list of the paramis. Would you speak about transforming the inspiration for one's practice from that of seeking an enlightenment experience to that of developing these virtues instead. This question comes up a lot. First, there is no way to tell, you know, for sure if someone else is enlightened or not, or has reached a stage of awakening. Unless you have reached that stage yourself and actually have powers of mind to see other people's minds. And uh, one of the things in that sutta about uh, Anuruddha, he had those powers and so he could know that his companions were fully enlightened as well through his own through his own power. But for us more ordinary folk there's no knowing for sure from the outside. What does enlightenment mean? What do the stages of enlightenment mean? One reason that it's very difficult to tell from the outside is that it has very little to do with personality, and yet 
that's the level we mostly relate to people on. That's the level we perceive people, we judge people you know, about their personality characteristics. Enlightenment or awakening has to do with a transformative understanding of the selfless nature, the the empty selfless nature of this mind and body. That understanding will show itself through many different kinds of personalities, often quite neurotic ones. And so if that's how we're used to assessing people, it's very hard to tell. We need to drop to a whole other level you know, of care and attentiveness. What's the level of wisdom? What's the purity of motivation? Now, what's the quality of kindness in a person? Those are much more the indications. Even for the person, him or herself, especially at the first stages in, you know, the Theravada tradition talk of four stages of enlightenment, of stream-enterer, once-returner, non-returner, arhant. Even at that first stage of awakening, there is quite a range, even in oneself, of the intensity or depth of the experience. For some people, it is a major upheaval. It's as if things are turned inside out and it's a dramatic reorganization of understanding. For other people, it's a much more subtle affair. You know, and it's just the culmination of culmination of the development in the meditation practice, and it can be just a very quick moment of opening to what is beyond this mind and body. And for some people, it's hardly noticed. You know, it's not a big, sudden transformation. The Buddha talked of three different kinds of stream-enterers. One kind will go on to get fully enlightened in that very life. The other kind will go on to get enlightened within two or three lifetimes. And the third kind of stream-enter is one who it said will take seven more lifetimes. Well, if we're in the seven more lifetime category, it may be that the strength of the spiritual faculties you know, faith and energy and mindfulness, concentration and wisdom, it was enough to bring us to that first level, but just just the barest, the barest glimpse of it. Whereas for others, those faculties may be very strong, very well developed. And so for them, it's more than just a glimpse. It's a, it's a really transforming, radical change of understanding. So there's no one pattern, and that's why it makes it very difficult um, to assess, certainly of other people, and even sometimes of oneself. 
When I was a freshman in college, I took a course called Physics for Poets, and this was taught by a Nobel Prize winning physicist. His name was Polycarp Cush, at Columbia, New York. So this world-renowned physicist. And they wanted to, you know, just see if they could interest some liberal arts majors in the scientific world. So this huge, it was this huge lecture course. And one of the things he did, an assignment, was he asked us each to write a short paper on the nature of gravity, what gravity was. And even though it's a, it's a totally recognized phenomenon and understood how it works, as I understand it, people don't really understand why it works or what it is. Some, you know, it's essential, it's essential nature. So he thought, I think, oh well, there are, you know, 300 would-be poets out there. Maybe they'll have some idea. And so this is before I knew anything about Buddhism. But as I was thinking about gravity, I just had this image in my mind of, you know, I was thinking of the earth and everything, you know, pulled to the center. So I just imagined that the center of the earth was a zero point, you know, basically an empty zero point. And I just had this image of everything, you know, the movement of things falling in to the zero point, and that's what gravity was. Uh, this was not a scientific revolution. <laughs> However, years later, you know, I was studying with Manindra in India, and he talked a lot about sort of the worldling being in the gravitational field of sense desires, sense pleasures. And at the first stage of awakening, it's like through the process of meditation, which is what we're all involved in now, it's we're pulled out of the gravitational field of sense pleasures and in that moment of awakening fall into the gravitational field of that zero center of selflessness. You know, so even if it is just a glimpse, it's like the reference point for our lives have changed. And that's the power. Of, of the culmination uh, of the path of practice. It's a very delicate balance to hold a sense of goal and aspiration with a commitment to the present moment and to the cultivation of those qualities that were mentioned of the different paramis. Yes, we are cultivating patience and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom, and that's happening right now in every moment. And so we're totally grounded now. Here's where we are, understanding the selflessness of it, and at the same time, understanding that this is a path that is leading someplace. If we get too caught up in expectation and wanting, it pulls us out of the moment. We're no longer on the path. If we lose sight of the sense of goal, we actually lose a quality of a certain inspiration. And I think I talked about this 
last week or the week before in terms of the balance of faith and wisdom. We're resting in the moment, we're in the moment, cultivating these qualities in the moment and understanding that it's part of a bigger path. Well, this is, I find, tremendously energizing. This, what we're doing and all of our practice, moment to moment, is part of a much bigger thing. It's leading to this understanding, this transformative understanding, the realization of the zero center. There were quite a few karma questions. If I intend to get up early to practice and then I make all kinds of rationalizations and stay in bed, what is the karmic result? (laughs) Net net positive, net negative, or a wash? (laughs) What does it mean to own your karma as your true property? Could you say something about the notion that karma should be fair or just? I thought the Buddha said that karma was dukkha, not fair, and that we should free the mind from the forces that create karma. Do you believe that every result has a karmic origin, that randomness does not exist? For example, is being born into an abusive family the karmic result of bad things we did in a former lifetime? Are infants pure? or do they carry huge amounts of baggage from former lifetimes? How about getting cancer as an adult? Is this because we did something awful this lifetime or before? Most importantly, can you clarify how or whether karmic results are impersonal or whether we're getting what we deserve? Is merit another expression for good karma? By dedicating the merit from a given act, say an act of dana or a retreat, do we theoretically give it away in dedicating our merit or share it like computers share files? As to dedicating merit to to a loved one who's died, what exactly is meant by cutting through the distance created by death? Is it meant to help along the person in his or her current reincarnation? Okay. In terms of making the intention to get up and then rationalizing the staying in bed, I think it's helpful to realize that each action brings its own result. You know, and so to the degree that the intention was strong uh, to get up, there is some wholesome result from that. To the degree that we did not act on it, that other thoughts of laziness or greed for staying warm in bed came up, so the comic fruit of that is not wholesome because it's coming from a less wholesome mind state. So each one has its own has its own effect. In terms of measuring whether net gain, net loss, or a wash, uh, 
think you need to ask uh, someone else. (laughs) 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 The question about whether karma is fair, I think that's a very interesting question and notion. I don't think fair is the right word. In my understanding, and understanding karma is very complex. And so just to take all of this, uh, you know, as an invitation to explore, not as being the last word on it. But my understanding of karma is not, it's not so much a question of whether it's fair or not, but the fact that it's lawful. This is the law. If you put your hand in fire, is it fair that you get burned? No, it's not fair. (laughs) But it's just how things are. This is the law. Certain actions bring about certain results. Not everything we experience in this life is the result of a past karmic act, of a past action. Because karma is just one of the laws governing our experience. There are different laws which are also operative. You know, there's the law, and this is all, you know, in classical, traditional Buddhist language and could have a modern update in terms of language. But one of the other laws is the law of temperature. You know, you could, I, I don't know whether thermodynamics has anything to do with that, but it sounds like it might. <laughs> you know, there are laws of genetics. They, in, in Buddhism, it's called the law of seeds. You know, you plant one thing and you don't get, you plant an apple seed, you don't get a mango tree. That there are things which are following a natural law that are not karmic. It's just the law of nature. But many of our actions, many of the things we experience, are the result of our past actions. And it's not from the Buddhist perspective that newborns come in with an empty slate. The very fact of taking rebirth from the Buddhist understanding is because of the force of desire and grasping and clinging, and we are all trailing long, long histories of different actions. Just as an example of the lawfulness but perhaps not fairness of karma is one aspect of it which I found interesting. We are all trailing tremendous amount of wholesome and unwholesome actions, even from within this lifetime, much less others. So which karmas come to fruition? The Buddha said that when we are living in an internal environment of unwholesome mind states, that attracts the unwholesome karma of past actions. And so when we're living, cultivating 
consciously or unconsciously, greed and hatred and ignorance and delusion, you know, and aversion. So then it's going to call up the karmic fruits, it attracts the karmic fruits of those kinds of actions. And when we are living in an environment of internal skill, of internal wholesome states, and when we're cultivating everything we're doing here of loving-kindness and generosity and kindness and wisdom and mindfulness, it attracts the wholesome karma of our past actions. It doesn't mean exclusively. It just means that we come more in the influence of that particular stream. Now, when somebody who's living with a lot of hatred you know, or a lot of greed does something that is unwholesome, it's said that the karmic fruit of that unwholesome act is much greater than the karmic fruit of the same act done by somebody with a mind that's filled with wholesome qualities. So that's an, that's an, an example of something that doesn't seem quite fair. It's the same action. And yet one has more karmic consequence than the other. And the example given to illustrate this is the example of having a very small container of water, you know, and you put salt in it, and the whole thing tastes salty. If you put the same amount of salt in a much bigger body of water, you don't taste the salt at all. When the mind is contracted and tight, and bound up in defilement. Every unwholesome act reverberates more strongly within that contracted state. With a mind that is expansive and open and loving, the very same unwholesome act, I don't know how one would say, is, is absorbed in the field of openness and so has less consequence. So this is just one example of the infinite complexities of how karma unfolds. For me, the main understanding of it is that it is a lawful process. It's not personal. It's not somebody up there punishing me. It's just, you put your hand in fire, it burns. Acts of greed have a certain consequence. Acts of hatred have another consequence. Acts of love have another one. It's lawful. It's impersonal. When we understand this, and one of the meanings of the word dharma is the law, and so our dharma practice could be understood as understanding the law, understanding how things work, understanding the truth, as we become more sensitized through our own experience of the lawfulness of what creates happiness, what creates suffering, then we simply align ourselves. And as we align ourselves with the truth of things, with the lawfulness, becomes the source of a tremendous happiness in our lives. And this is what is so empowering 
about the nature of wisdom, of clear seeing. We're not just groping through our lives, hoping, you know, for for happiness. We actually understand what its causes are. We understand the causes of suffering. We begin to abandon them. Well, there were many more. Maybe I'll just end with this last, this last group. How many of your own past lives can you recall? Can you tell us about any of them? Is the truth of reincarnation something you have been able to realize? If so, could you say a little about your experience? Why do you believe in multiple lifetimes? Is it based on belief, or do you know it to be... Second. Or do you know it to be true, as you know impermanence to be true? I know one doesn't need to believe in it, but how to explore the concept and have you found it important? Um, I don't recall any of my past lifetimes, although I did ask Deepama, you know, who was this teacher with wonderful, wonderful powers of mind and depths of realization. Um, she told me that in my last life, I was in the second lowest of the Deva realms, <laughs> where I enjoyed myself for a long time. <laughs> So when I heard that, I did not have any personal experience of it, but it sounded right. (laughs) One of the things that happens in meditation to varying degrees, and many of you probably have experienced this to some extent, is that as the mind gets quieter, we actually do start to have memories that go way, way back, things we didn't even know were in there or you remembered, you know, sometimes from early childhood. And there are some people at different, particularly it happens at certain stages in practice. And again, it just depends on their own particular karmic propensities. But some people at that stage in particular, the memories do go back even to infancy. Upandita would talk about people who actually can remember at that time experiences in the womb or past life past life experiences so it can happen and also people have reported to me those kinds of experiences another way one can know that is through specifically the development of uh, 
certain powers of mind through concentration practice. There are systematic ways of going back in time. Deepama explained it to us once because she had practiced that and done it. She said one way through jhana practice, through the development of very strong jhana, which is concentration, is, is that you actually go back moment by moment, moment by moment by moment. Of course, it's very quick in that jhanic state, and you go back to the time of death, to previous lives. She said that she went back to the time of the Buddha and could actually re-experience that. I have a hard time remembering yesterday, <laughs> so I think it's going to be a while until I get to my past life. Is it important? I mean, what, what about this whole notion of rebirth? I'll just share with you briefly my own odyssey with that notion. Uh, because when I came to the practice, I came from studying Western philosophy, very Western mindset. I had no belief at all in rebirth. It just was a completely foreign concept to me. As I began to practice and study, a few different things happened. One is that as I practiced, I saw so much of what the Buddha taught, I began to verify in my own experience Oh, yeah, this is really true. And then I'd read some more, and my practice would deepen. Oh, yeah, this is true. So then I began to just extrapolate. Well, if he was right about so much, there's a good chance you know, he may have been right in this teaching also. And so it, it kind of softened my resistance to the idea. I just became more open to it, just based on a greater faith in what I could verify in my experience. So that was one aspect of the opening. The second was talking to Deepama directly as someone who, as far as I could ascertain, really did have that power. And and she said just from her own experience so unequivocally that it was true. And I had no reason to doubt her. So that also became, well, the Buddha said it, you know, in the books, Deepama saying it from her own experience. So I began just to have more faith in the possibility. What really led me to sort of my own intuitive feeling of it, as the practice went on, the meditation practice, and I began to see the non, to experience the non-material nature of the mind. You know, really look very directly and experientially at the nature of awareness, the nature of the mind, and to know from one's own experience that it is not a material phenomenon. So then lots of things began to be possible. And so just in all these ways, you know, the, my Western conditioning began, around it began to weaken. I just opened, well, well let, me just, let me just sit with this. Um, and over the years, it just has made more and more sense to me. So it's not a question of 
knowing from personal experience. It's more a sense of just opening to the possibility, even probability of it. To me, it just also points to the great mystery, to the very great mystery of it all, the Dharma. It's vast. You know, it's so much more than our limited view of who we are and this physical body. And the practice is really what opens us to that. We're developing the the skills of investigation and exploration into this mystery of awareness, of consciousness, of knowing, of what's beyond knowing. So we've gone a little late. Just close with a uh, a little uh, reading from Thoreau, who's kind of our local Western mystic. If you advance confidently in the direction of your dreams and endeavor to live the life you have imagined, you will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. You will pass an invisible boundary. New universal laws will begin to establish themselves around and within you. If you have built castles in the air, your work need not be lost. That is where they should be. Now put the foundation under them. We can have the highest aspiration. We can have the highest aspiration. We should have the highest aspiration. And then we build the foundation. Let's sit for just a few minutes. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.